welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Hello and welcome. Today is the first of a multi-part series on estate planning. We're going to explore the fundamentals of estate planning right down through the most advanced stuff when it comes to how to estate plan for business owners and talking about how to have these conversations, how to figure out what is what you want and how to avoid massive disasters with these. And for the first episode, I've actually invited my friend and colleague Guy Anderson to interview me on the fundamentals of estate planning. And with that, here's our conversation. Hello, Guy. Hi, Jason. Thanks for taking the time to be my guest host again. I'm happy to do it. So uh, I'll let you jump right into it. Right. So today we're going to be talking about estate planning for business owners. So let's before we get into the you know that nuance or that aspect of estate planning, can you just describe for your listeners what estate planning is and and from a very broad perspective, what what is estate planning? So people hear that term and the first thing they think is a will, right? And like so many things in this industry, too often we confuse the process with the end result. The end result is a will. Estate planning is the process of organizing everything that matters to you from sentiment to the people in your life to everything you own and figuring out what it is you want your legacy to be, both in terms of what you leave behind for people and how you basically, they remember you quite honestly. So it's not just about creating a will. That is the end result. It's about setting the stage for how you have the best optimal outcome when you die. And that involves far more than just going to a lawyer and getting some paperwork done. Okay. So it's interesting you you define it that way, because I was going to ask you a little bit more about what is involved in estate planning. Because like you said, it's more than more than just a will. It's the process. Can you get more into what's involved in estate planning itself? Yeah. So let's talk about the table stakes stuff. The table stakes is that essentially you start off by doing an inventory of everything you own, right? So if you've done a financial plan, all this stuff is is basically done. So bottom line is we have to understand that at some point we're all going to depart this earth. None of us has lived forever last I checked. And uh, essentially that has to, so we have to figure out what happens to all this stuff and how is it, again, want to be remembered and want to leave a mark whether that be through the friends and family that we have or through charities or organizations that matter to us. So we start off with an inventory of everything we have. And then it comes down to, okay, what matters to you? Like, what is your, what are the key things that really you're trying to accomplish here? And that includes things like, I want my spouse to be secure. I want to leave everything to my kids so that they can do whatever with it. I mean, that's a really abstract term, but when you start to dig into it, sometimes you find that they really don't want to leave everything to their kids. I mean, we've had, I've had situations where we've done financial plan and projected what the net worth of death is going to be. And the first thing they say is, I don't want to leave them that much. I'm going to ruin them, right? So then as my friend and colleague, Mark Halpern says, when you die, your money goes three different places. It goes to your beneficiaries, it goes to the government in terms of taxes, and it goes to the charity. And with those last two, you can make one worse off for the other. So you can choose to give to charity and, and basically part of that comes from the government. So what's involved is first and foremost, an inventory. Secondly, is a deep understanding for what you want your family and your situation to look like beyond you being around, right? Do you want to endow a scholarship at a university because 
you know what, you had a hard time paying for university yourself. You have to work it through and you want someone to not have in a similar situation, not have to go through that. Did you have a, a very close and intimate situation with, with, with a hospital that you means a lot to you? Like what are the things that matter to you beyond the family? Let's bring those to the table. And then it comes down to, of course, we want to sustain the spouse first and foremost, after you pass away, we don't want to endanger their lives or their welfare. And we want to, most people I've yet to meet anyone who said, I'm not giving my kid anything, right? Warren Buffett's got this great line about giving your kids enough so they can do anything, but not so much they can do nothing. So basically, what is it you want to do? What is it you want to leave behind to them? And what is it that you want to, them to be when you're gone? You know, if you know that they're going to quit their jobs and retire at age 50, the second you die, because you know what, they're just going to blow all the money that you built and it's going to be gone for the next generation. Is that what you want? Do you want to leave money to the, to the generation beyond that? So it's not just about where everything goes in the administration. It's about what is the outcome on the people and places you leave behind? That so, takes a lot of introspection. That, that's great. And I'm glad you described it that way. And before I go on to some of my next questions, can you describe what happens to uh, an individual if they don't have an estate plan? Like, What are the ramifications of not doing a plan? We all have an estate plan, whether you know it or not. Either you have one you develop yourself or you have one the government imposes on you. So right. if you don't have your, your estate affairs sorted out, you fall into what's known as intestancy. And intestancy, the government tells you what happens. So the biggest belief that people have is that it's all just going to go to my spouse. Not the case. It depends on what province you're in. In Ontario, for example, it's the first two hundred thousand dollars of your personal earnings that go to your spouse, and then it basically will then go to be split between your spouse and children. If it's one child, fifty percent. If it's two children, two thirds of anything beyond two hundred thousand goes to the kids, and the one third to the spouse. So that can lead people into some really unfortunate situations that involve the public trustee's office and a lot of bad administration pains afterwards. So you have a choice. You can do nothing, in which case. Suboptimal outcomes going to guaranteed be happening because the government has painted one picture for everybody, or you can actually have one yourself that basically right. dictates where everything goes. And I'll share a story, a couple of stories. The most heartbreaking moments I have in this business are when people are dealing with their, their family's estate and that family's left behind a nightmare, left behind a, a terrible scenario. And when that happens, when you see the resentment these people have for their parents who passed away or their spouses who passed away after they're gone, it just breaks your heart. And the last reaction I want my family to have when I die is resentment because I couldn't be bothered to get my act together. So it's interesting you, you describe it that way because yeah, if someone passes away without a will, it's not only that they lose control of who gets what, but can you explain and, and maybe describe how long the process might take if they don't have a will? How long is a piece of string? It could take forever. It depends on how <laughs> we're going to talk about how their assets get organized and the impact on that shortly. But if you have to go through the intestacy process, someone has to file to be the executor. We'll talk about, well, the executor, we're going to talk about roles as well too, but Executor is the person in charge of executing the will or the estate, right? Like they're the estate, also known as the estate trustee. They are, they are responsible for basically making sure that final wishes get taken care of. Now, if there is no will, then they have to apply to the courts to have that privilege. What if there's conflict? Right. What if more than one person wants to do that? And the I have seen it in my own personal life with friends where, you know, second wife versus the kids on this issue because no one trusted anyone. Now, I'll tell you right now, the, being an executor is not an honor. It is a massive amount of work. It is a giant pain on the ass, part of my language. Yes, you can. You are financially rewarded for it, but you're financially report, rewarded as a as taxable income. So it's not quite as good as just inheriting the money in the first place. But there's also legal liability imposed upon you uh, to, to do what's, what you're supposed to do. So that can be just a massive pain. So yeah, if, if not, you have to go to court. 
You have to get that done. If everything's not organized, then it becomes a treasure hunt. What did this person own? What did this person owe? It's going to take forever to figure all that stuff out. Where did they put their passports and their driver's license that I now have to have canceled? Right? What's their OHIP number? Their their health insurance number that has to be canceled now? Like the it just the rabbit hole for all these things that have to be done is just immense. And if you have a disorganized person who just didn't care to get this stuff done, if you want your family to hate you, the guaranteed way to do that is be disorganized and leave behind no will. Knock yourself out. Your family's going to hate you for the rest of your for their their existence. Okay. So so what exactly does a will do? That we've talked about we're talking about yeah. all the ramifications of with and without a will, but what is it that a will does? So actually, I'm going to take a quick step and let's talk about how your assets are, are organized and how that impacts your estate. And that's why the will is important. We'll get to this. So okay. um, with estate planning, there's something called a 323 process, right? So the 323 process, first off, is how are your assets owned? Because that impacts your estate. First off, you have three different ways you can have you can leave money behind. One is in joint trust with right of survivorship. So you own something jointly with someone else. What happens is, is that that asset passes to the remaining owner without probate, without, which is a, a fee charged by the government for administering an estate. And without any, if it's, if it's a spouse, it can roll over to them on a spousal tax-free rollover. But it does not go through the will because it is already, the joint trust with right of survivorship establishes that the other person on my death is entitled to the rest of this. So that's the first thing. The second piece is the designated assets. So things that have a beneficiary. So you legally can't have a beneficiary on everything, but you can have it on RSPs, PFSAs are the big ones, insurance policies are the big ones. Those ones, those get paid out directly to the individual, typically allowing them to roll it over. If it's an insurance policy, sorry, if it's a RSP or TFSA, those can be rolled over into the RSP or TFSA of the beneficiary if it's a spouse. Otherwise, it has to get paid out to the individual as is. And the insurance, they, those, all those payments get made without going through pay, probate and are not impacted by the will. Okay, They're not part of the estate. Everything else you have falls into your estate. And by falling into your estate, that is what the will does. The will establishes the rules for the estate, for the remaining assets. So anything that I own individually that does not have a beneficiary on it and does not have a um, jointly owned basically goes through the will. Now, Sometimes people will say, well, okay, I can make this easy. I'll put everything in joint. Problem is, well, if you have like five kids or four kids, you can put it in joint with all of them. Sure, no problem. That, that, that's going to make it a big pain. But if you put it in joint with one of them, or you make one person a beneficiary of something, the others, technically, they own that asset. And the other family members who you want to leave money to have no claim to that asset. It's a real, real pain. All right. And there's also an issue if you, if you open a joint account with uh, with a child or something like that, their spouse. You know, if there's a breakdown in the marriage, or if there's there's credit protection issues, they, yeah, they can have. Honestly, people open up joint accounts to avoid probate. So probate, let's, let's be let's let like, probate is small, right? I mean, it varies from province to province. Some of it is sometimes it's zero. In Ontario, it's only one point five percent on anything over fifty thousand. So yeah, on large amounts, it can be enormous. But the number of stupid things people will do to avoid this is, is astonishing, right? And more often than not, like probate is the tax you pay to basically get the will executed the way you want. Think of it that way. And at 1.5%, it is far cheaper than the legal fees for fixing problems for things that go wrong the other way. And you're absolutely right. Like you're now exposed to the other person. And honestly, I really wish that in Canada, anytime you open a joint account, there should be a subsequent questionnaire that requires legal that requires legal sign off because people do not understand what they're getting into. That's a very interesting point. And I want to come back to that that comment that you just made about, uh, about probate. Yeah, it's 1.5%. And most people most people recognize that as as the tax it is, but when you describe it and say it's fifteen grand on a million, 
you know, most people realize, oh, that's not that big a deal. So why jump through all these hoops to avoid probing yeah. when there's ways to minimize it? Yeah, but it's there's a point at which you got to say the minimization is at the expense of 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 sound estate planning. So there's that. I, the other thing people don't realize is they think if they put everything in joint, they split the they split the tax bill with everybody. That's not how it works. It's source of funds that works. So I've seen people put things in joint thinking they're going to split tax with a family member who had no income and. Eh doesn't work that way. It's called That's attribution right. rules. We talked about that before. So let me go back to the will. The will is a document that basically says, this is where I want everything to go, right? Now, it can acknowledge the existence of the beneficiaries of, of, of designated accounts. It can acknowledge the joint accounts. It can actually override the beneficiary designation. So the last, so the way the beneficiary designation works on, on, on uh, benef- uh, designated accounts is it's the last declaration that wins. So if you set up an account and say your spouse, but then you set up your account and say your children, sorry, set up a will and say your children, it's the last designation that wins. So the will dictates who's in charge of what, who gets what, and what is there to be done. So it'll say for the executor to take into account all of the, everything they own to basically pay off all their debts and taxes. And then it comes down to who gets what, the beneficiaries. And back to the 323, there's two ways to leave money to people. One is by direct gift, right? So I'm going to give stuff to something. I'm going to, I'm going to name an object or an amount of money that goes directly to somebody or it goes to a trust on their behalf, which it's basically, we've talked about trust before. Please go back and look at, listen to those, uh, to the interview with Lee Fernandez about the different types of trusts. And then the last part is basically that it, everything else falls into what's known as residue. So if you don't say this one person gets this one thing, it goes into a giant pot and then it gets split amongst your beneficiary, other beneficiaries as you name them, right? So you can leave it an unequal split, an equal split. If you're leaving an unequal split, you, you need to provide some color as to why, but you know, a good lawyer will guide you through that. So that's that's the two parts. So designated or or, or sorry, uh, trust or, or direct. And the third part is it has to deal with three scenarios to be effective. First is what happens if you're married. What happens if a, one spouse dies? Second one, what is what happens if both spouses have died and, the, and your your children are left behind? And then the third scenario is what happens if the entire family unit is gone? Right. So if you deal with all three of those scenarios, you've effectively put together your will. Right now. Considering this podcast is uh, financial planning for business owners, can you speak to the estate planning process as it pertains to business owners? What, what sort of unique estate planning or, or yeah, what, what sort of what unique planning aspects are important to business owners? This is, and that's a teaser. I'm not going to answer that because I get into that later with Rachel Blumenfeld, who's uh, on a later episode as part of this series. But I will say this much. With business owners, there are typically your biggest asset ends up being the value of your shares or your business. And that there are some unique opportunities around around probate planning there that can help reduce the overall cost there. But the bigger issue comes down to when you're a business owner, you better have a succession plan in place. And we've talked about succession planning before on this podcast, but there has to be a separate, there's an entire separate piece that has to go with how are these, once these shares are transferred over, are they going to be redeemed? Are my partners obligated to buy them out? How does that work? Where's the money come from? So you have to have a plan for how those shares get treated. Does a spouse remain as a shareholder? If not, how are those shares going to be purchased by everybody else? So that's a partnership agreement, which we've talked about on the podcast also. So not going to go too far into that. Okay. Okay. That's uh, can't wait to listen to that one too. So on top of just the will, there's typically other documents that are created when someone's executing on their, their estate planning process. Can you talk yep. to, talk about powers, powers of attorney for business owners? Yeah. I'll do the powers of attorney in a second, but I'll only go back to one thing I forgot in the will. So just one thing I want to talk about the wills. It establishes a couple of things, like who's in charge of what, right? So you have the executor who's in charge of executing the will, also known as the estate trustee in most cases. You have trustees for ongoing trusts, 
you have beneficiaries and then you have guardians, guardians for minor children. The one thing people don't realize about guardians for minor children is your appointment of a guardian is not technically legally binding. Those guardians have to make an appeal to the court to basically get guardianship. And if they are no, if they are not fit to be guardians, the court will not permit it. And there could be conflict there, but your wishes do count. They do are, are taking into consideration the court. So let me get back to your question now about the powers of attorney. So the will deals with what happens when you're gone. The power of attorney deals with what happens when you're not able to act for yourself or maybe you don't want to. So two types of power of attorney. One for healthcare. This is what everybody thinks of, right? It's the old pull the plug one, right? Who gets to make medical decisions when you're not able to make medical decisions? So basically you have to name who's in charge of that and probably a secondary person. If you're going to name more than one person, hopefully there's some sort of, hopefully it's three, not two. So there's a dispute mechanism that can be ruled out. But essentially what it's doing is quite simply saying, if I can't make medical decisions for myself, someone else has to do it. And there's a, I can't remember which TV show it was where, where, where someone said, uh, we've decided we wanted to pull the plug and then they zoom out and the guy's like, I'm right here, I'm awake. Uh, right? So no one can force those decisions on you if you have capacity because you can overrule it. But I will always say this much, the person has to be emotionally capable of making that decision because it can be very difficult. And I would also say communicate to the individual what it is that you want, what your wishes are, so that it's easier for them because they have permission. So that's the first one, the power of attorney for personal care. The second one's for property. So property basically allows someone to handle all your personal affairs, financial personal affairs, pay your bills, manage money, all of that on your behalf. And there's basically, you want to make sure that someone is capable of doing that, responsible, good with money, good with records, and also someone you can trust. Because little known fact, there is a separate branch of, of the criminal code for theft under power of attorney, and it is more punitive than normal theft. So me, me robbing you right now, guy, for you know a thousand bucks out of your pocket, if I was your power of attorney, is far worse if I'm your power of attorney because it's a fiduciary responsibility. So basically, that person has to be responsible. And there's all kinds of case law on, on terrible powers of attorney. Now, there's two, one important clause to know about, a couple of things to know about uh, powers of attorney that's important. That person cannot rewrite your will. So the will is still solid, right? And that person has to act on your behalf. Those are two things that are, are paramount. Powers of attorney, one of the things that sometimes is in there is a forbiddance of gifts, right? So they cannot gift. Maybe you were maybe you were gifting money to your kids on occasions. Occasion you can forbid that. The other thing to be well aware of when it comes to powers of attorney is that depending on who drafts them, you'll see a clause. And this clause is known as a springing clause. And a springing clause says that this is only active should basically I be incapacitated. I am not a big fan of those because now you've created another administrative burdensome issue to prove that person's incapacitated, get the document to support that in order to be executed in the power of attorney. So that can be useful because it depends on, you don't want, because it's protection. However, it does create burden. Non-springing power of attorneys, which is typically with the lawyers I work with directly, typically right, those are active the day they're signed. So you have to be careful with those because the other person can go ahead and start working on your behalf. Now, this is useful. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm an extended, I'm an extended business trip and some important legal documents need to be signed for whatever. We're per, like, say we were closing on a house, right? Technically, if I couldn't be there for whatever reason, my wife is the power of attorney. It's not a spring power of attorney. She has the right to sign on my behalf for that. So it allows you, it can be, and it can actually be really handy, especially when people travel a lot and just to have their spouse run their affairs in that regard. So that's something to be aware of. The online will kits have all defaulted to springing powers of attorney just to be safe. But in general, I'm not, I understand they, they make sense in some places, but they can be burdensome in others, especially when you're dealing with banks, because the people at the bank are not used to writing this stuff, reading this stuff or understanding. And they're going to want to see, they don't even know what proof to ask for is the problem. Sounds great. We've covered off wills. We've covered off power of attorney for healthcare and, and property. We talked a little bit about designating beneficiaries and 
joint accounts, et cetera. Is there anything else you think you want to share with your listeners before we wrap up? No, I mean, I hope you guys stick around for this. I mean, hopefully, because you're listening to my podcast, you're already sticking around. So just to give you a preview of what's going to happen next, we are dealing with estate planning for business owners uh, with Rachel Blumenfeld, who's a partner over there at Bearless and with more respected or most respected estate planning attorneys in, in the country, in my opinion. We are, my, my colleague and friend, uh, Harris Jones, is coming on after that to talk about avoiding estate planning disasters and how to work with collaborative team in order to make that happen. And then we wrap it up with uh, Christine Brunson, who's a estate planning consultant that, or legacy planning consultant, she likes to say, which really handles a lot of the like the vision aspects and a lot of the, you know, if you really want to dive into what makes you tick and how to execute on that, that is exactly what she does. It's about being bringing purpose to estate planning. And like I said, don't confuse the end product with the process. The same problem I have with financial planning. People think it's a, it's a document. It's not a document. A document's a financial plan. Financial planning is a process. I mean, it is an ever iterative process. Legacy planning is just what happens at the tail end of that process, but it, it resonates throughout the entire process altogether. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you asking me on to uh, host your podcast again today, Jason. I think you've done a great job in explaining to your listeners about the basics of estate planning. Yeah, thank you. Very much appreciate it. That was Guy Anderson's interview of myself for the basics of estate planning. This was meant to be a very brief 101. Essentially, please stick around. The next three episodes are very interesting. Uh, I've been holding off estate planning for a while as a topic because I wanted to line up the guests. Finally came together. And so the month of December looks like it's estate planning month for everybody. So I hope you enjoy that. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.